to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. Thank you all so much for joining us for another episode. Jenna, we've got the best guests in studio today, and I'm not just talking about our coworker Mark. We've got a couple of babies in with us, but we'll get into that in a little bit. We're being joined today by Mark Muthersball, who is one of the keepers on our Animal Ambassador team. You guys have had a really hectic, crazy run at it right now. A ton of excitement, a ton of happiness. But we'll start off just thanks so much for joining us today and taking the time out. I know you're crazy busy right now, so we appreciate you joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Uh, okay, so Mark just hinted at that, and it's hard. There are two Marks here today. Yes. But Mark from the Ambassador team brought baby skunks. And Mark from the Africa team and I are really giddy right now because <laughs> we are currently holding... Yeah. How old are they? Uh, they are just over a month old right now. Month old baby skunks, and they are sleeping, and we're trying to focus really hard. So if we're jotting in and out of this episode, just bear with us. Um, it's because I'm just being overwhelmed by cuteness right now. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly from the skunks. Yeah. <laughs> the other mark is pretty cute, too. So we have baby skunks. They're a month old, and you work for the ambassador department. I want to explain to guests why you would bring these skunks, but first tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into the zoo field, become like how you became a zookeeper, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was always a nature kid growing up. Uh, you could find me in my backyard, flipping over rocks, looking for redback salamanders. Um, grew up at the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo, visiting there quite frequently. And basically, ever since I found out that being a zookeeper was a job that you could have, that was my path. Um, so I sought out opportunities when I was growing up. Um, as a teenager, I volunteered at the Natural History Museum in Cleveland with their uh, live animal collection. Um, so it was a lot of native Ohio wildlife, but it also had a component of um, education and outreach. So we did public programming for that as well. Um, and then from there, I pursued a biology degree, uh, took a lot of advanced science classes in high school, um, and ended up doing a couple of internships at various zoos um, around the country, uh, which eventually led me to applying to the graduate program, um, the advanced inquiry program that's part of Project Dragonfly with Miami University. Um, and that's what brought me to Cincinnati specifically. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so I moved to Cincinnati about eight years ago to do that master's degree program, um, completed that, and then through connections there, uh, I spent some time in our wild encounters department doing animal handling and uh, public education outreach. Um, I worked for a few years in the cat ambassador program doing the cheetah runs and cheetah programs here on grounds. Um, and then for a little while, actually worked in the Africa department yes. with both of you. So it's, it yes. uh, feels like a very comfy homecoming, uh, <laughs> to hang out with you guys again. Yeah. We um, always joke that you were one of our COVID saviors. <laughs> it was when all the craziness went down with COVID and teams were getting jumbled and stuff was getting shut down. And Mark came over and graciously spent a couple months with us to pull us out of the slog we were in just trying to get through the COVID time. So it's always appreciated. <laughs> yeah. So after the time um, spent in the Africa department, there was a position that opened in our uh, animal ambassador team and um, I was selected for that. And I've been in that role for uh, just over two years now. Awesome. So animal ambassador team is obviously a, um, a very unique team at our zoo. It's in the name, the air ambassador animals, right? We just speak a little bit about, uh, what role that means for you as a keeper because you have I think uh, you do a lot more outreach and education than the rest of us and we speak a lot a little bit about what that means for the animals in your care as well. 
Yeah, uh, in a lot of the other departments on grounds here, uh, keepers will do chats or t training demonstrations, um, and for the most part, those are conducted uh, while the animals are in their own habitats. Um, for our ambassador team, the unique part of that is that our animals are actually able to travel um, a little bit further from their normal homes in the zoo. Um, and so we'll do programs where we'll take uh, the animals uh, to various locations around the zoo. Sometimes it's one of the classrooms in the education building. Um, sometimes it would be an after-hours event. Um, and then oftentimes we'll just spend uh, time during our day out in the park with our animals, interacting with guests and giving them uh, a closer up opportunity to, to meet some of our creatures. So the background of that is that um, we need to get our animals used to being in spaces. Um, so novelty is a really big thing that we focus on um, and sort of getting our animals comfortable in spots that they might not find themselves normally. Um, and so that's a big, you're actually helping us out with that task right now. It's a really hard job. <laughs> One of the worst I've ever had is holding a baby skunk. <laughs> so that's why you brought the skunks today. Yeah, yeah. So they are, um, they're about a month old now, um, and we are working on um, socializing them and getting them used to being in new spaces, seeing new faces, smelling new smells, hearing different sounds. Um, all of that factors into... Um, having a successful animal ambassador that's set up to um, to be in that role at our zoo. I think it's really important, especially with skunks and native wildlife, that people could come across in their backyard here, well, at least for listeners in Cincinnati, Ohio. Like, so many people have a bad idea of what skunks are or are afraid of them mm -hmm. because they can, you know, spray you. But tell us a little bit about skunks. Um, you know, what are the odds that you'll actually get sprayed by a skunk, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so skunks uh, like to keep to themselves for the most part, if you find one in your backyard. Um, they actually will give you several heads up signs before they do spray. Um, so if you ever come across a skunk and you notice that they're either um, stomping their front feet or shuffling backwards, or they'll even actually do a handstand before they spray, um, all of those are indications that that skunk is feeling uh, either threatened or frightened or just doesn't know what's going on um, and is feeling a little bit more defensive. So if you notice any of those signs, that would be a great time for you to take some steps back and let that skunk go about its way. Yeah, so you should love skunks if you got to see them Definitely. at this size. Well, you could. You could check out the zoo's Instagram and Facebook. We've shared a little bit about them. Um, you will probably fall in love with skunks. And know <laughs> that they are just, if they do spray, it's because they're protecting themselves. They have no intentions of doing it for no reason. And like Mark said, they just feel threatened, right? They're just scared in the moment. I'm telling you, if you saw a baby skunk, please look at the zoo's Instagram, <laughs> Facebook. If you saw these babies, you'd be in love with skunks. I'm sure of it. <laughs> yeah, and we also, one of the reasons that we have um, native wildlife is to make that connection to creatures that you might find in your own backyard and then the benefits that they have in our local ecosystem. So skunks are super beneficial. Uh, they eat a ton of um, grubs, things that might uh, tear up your lawn and destroy your lawn. Um, they're omnivores, so they're kind of opportunistic in whatever they, um, whatever they come across, but they, they do perform a, a really important role in keeping insect populations in check too. Yeah, it's important for people to know. Are they eating insects at this age or are they on bottles? Are they nursing from mom? They, um, they are still with mom. So we are doing uh, socialization time away from mom throughout the day, but they spend the majority of the time with her. 
um, and they have not yet uh, weaned, so we'll, we'll be starting to explore some other food options in the upcoming weeks. That's awesome. exciting. That's, and I'm glad you mentioned about the ambassador animals, um, how important it is to get them kind of out of their normal routine and exploring new spaces. I think for any pet owner out there, anyone who's ever owned a dog or a cat, you know that that can be a challenge for your animal, and that can be sometimes a little bit intimidating or even scary for your pet. So uh, what kind of like techniques do you guys use to do that in a healthy, stress-free manner for the animals? Yeah, everything is going at um, the pace that the animals are showing us in their behavior. Um, that's a key component of really any zookeeper's job is mm -hmm. being able to translate what you're seeing from your animals into um, a human language. They can't use spoken English words like we do to communicate. Um, so being able to read uh, content signs, stress signs, um, behavioral changes, keeping track of benchmarks of when their teeth start coming in, when their eyes open, all of that factors in. Um, and we we will go at the, the pace that the skunks are, are showing us. Um, so some of that will be introducing them to new sounds. We might have um, a radio on in the background so they get used to having some ambient noise around. We might um, introduce a different spice into their um, enclosure so that they have a new smell to explore. So all of those are, are ways that they can get used to the novelty of the world around them. Mm. And that goes for not just the skunks, but also the foxes as well. I was well. going to say, the <laughs> thing is, we were here to talk about foxes. <laughs> Bat-eared foxes. And they are just as cute. I don't know which is cuter. Um, but Theodore and Earl, correct? Mm -hmm, yep. Okay, so we'll, we love the skunks, but we'll get back to the scheduled episode <laughs> here. And please tell us about the bat-eared foxes, their natural history, if you don't mind starting with that. Yeah, absolutely. So bat-eared foxes are um, a species that's native to sub-Saharan Africa. Um, they are savanna-dwelling for the most part. Um, they'll live in burrows. They're primarily nocturnal. Um, they are, on average, about 10 to 12 pounds for uh, sort of a, a size comparison there. Um, but they have huge satellite dish ears that they use to um, help them hunt. They love tracking down insects. Um, they can actually chew extra rapidly, which is an interesting uh, fact about bat-eared foxes. Um, but it's to help them crunch through the exoskeletons of all of the bugs that they would normally be consuming. Um, so they'll hunt at night using those gigantic ears and, and track down their, their food. Um, they'll also eat some produce uh, if they come across uh, small reptiles or small mammals. They'll eat those as well. Um, lizards, small snakes, mice, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, a, a large portion of their, uh, of their diet is going to be coming from insects. Interesting. So here at the zoo, obviously we don't have thousands upon thousands of insects to give them. What are they going to eat here at the zoo? Yeah, they eat a variety of things. Um, some favorites are, uh, they get, uh, the prepared meat that, um, a lot of the other carnivore, uh, animals around here eat, the ones that the lions and the painted dogs eat, uh, and you'll see that throughout the zoo. Um, they also eat a specially formulated um, insectivore diet. So mm -hmm. if you think of kind of the, the kibble that you might feed to your dog or cat, um, it's a similar product, but it's specifically manufactured for animals that eat uh, bugs as a majority of their diet. Um, they'll get that, they'll get produce, um, carrots, sweet potatoes, um, some banana, just a whole, a whole wide variety of stuff. Their diet is almost exactly the same as the meerkats. And it's almost like <laughs> nocturnal versus diurnal, like 
little ecosystems they fill or niches they fill. Yeah, well, and they share similar habitats, so they would be co cohabitating in those environments, so all of those food items would be available to both then. Yes. So tell us about the adult bat-eared foxes first. Yeah, so we have um, two adult bat-eared foxes here at the zoo. Frankie is our female. Um, she is uh, nine years old now, and Otis is our male. He's the same age. Um, Frankie has um, been an ambassador for her entire life, um, and she is um, a really incredible animal to be able to take out on programs. Um, it is something that the public really responds to in seeing an animal that looks sort of familiar, um, but is definitely not something that you would normally come across. Um, they're fairly rare to see out in their native habitats as well. Um, being nocturnal, being relatively shy overall, um, so they're not as commonly seen even as like lions or elephants or giraffes if you're um, out on safari. I remember when I was in Tanzania, uh, I spotted them from really, really far away. And everyone else was looking at, I forget, something big, you know, and exciting. <laughs> but I was like, oh my gosh. And the guides were so excited that we saw bat-eared foxes because it is so rare even for them who, you know, go out on safari every day. Yeah, when I was, um, when I was in Kenya a few years ago, we did a, um, a morning game drive in one of the national parks and had the opportunity to see a pair of them just as they were darting back into their burrow for the, to, um, to escape the daytime heat. So that was a, a really special experience to be able to come back and, uh, and then see the two that uh, I get to work with on a daily basis here. That's super special. I know you just started talking to us a little bit about Frank, Frankie and Otis, so I don't mean to derail the conversation, but I meant to ask a little bit earlier, do you know what the conservation status is for bat-eared foxes in the wild right now? Yeah, so um, like many of the things, uh, many of the animals that are living in Africa, um, they are threatened by habitat loss. Mm -hmm. um, they are currently um, in at least North American zoos, they are managed by a species survival plan. Um, and so those are generally focused on animals that are um, further into the endangered species list. Mm. Yeah. Unfortunately, like you said, I mean, habitat loss is such a big issue, especially throughout parts of Africa where it's rapidly developing. Um, but back to Frankie and Otis now. What was the uh, introduction period like? Was it tricky? Did they take to each other quickly? How'd that go? Yeah, so bat-eared foxes are actually um, pair-bonded animals by nature. So Frankie and Otis live together uh, year-round, uh, and they, they have for several years now. If a bat-eared <laughs> fox uh, joined our zoo population here, uh, we could have um, pairs of either a male and a female, or sometimes two females will be companions, or sometimes they'll live in a trio with one male and two females, um, but they are not found as a solo animal. Um, so Frankie and Otis have lived together for several years and are pretty well bonded to one another. And have they had babies before? Um, this is actually Frankie's first successful uh, litter of pups, so we're very excited to see um, her being an excellent mom and Otis being an excellent dad. Previously, um, Otis actually was born in Europe and came uh, to North America to participate in that breeding program. And he has had other litters at other zoos, um, but this is the first time that he's been a father here at Cincinnati. That's really exciting. That's awesome to hear. And so typically the ambassador animals or ambassador battered foxes, I should say, will often become ambassadors because either the mother isn't caring for them or they are being hand raised for some reason or another. But this time Frankie is sticking with her babies, doing great as, mo as a mother, but you guys also want these 
kits to be ambassador animals and you guys are actually kind of co-parenting correct like mm -hmm. and that's one of the first times this has ever been done yeah so we're in a really unique situation with frankie and otis um typically ambassador animals um that are being hand raised for uh, whatever reason um that become ambassador animals are sometimes not included in the breeding populations uh but frankie is a really unique individual because she is both an ambassador animal and is part of a breeding population. And she's the only uh, ambassador bat-eared fox in North America that is also part of that breeding plan. So um, our setup is sort of a, a pilot study to see if this works. Um, the, the two kits that she had this, uh, this year will be part of the breeding population regardless of their status as ambassador animals. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. And so we have a really unique opportunity to see kind of what happens. Um, again, reading body language, behavior, their reaction to us, um, but it allowed us to actually have um, much more data on benchmarks from the kits because we were, uh, because we had such a strong relationship with Frankie to start with. So a lot more data on like weights and different like milestones that they're Yeah, bringing. routine weights. Um, they started exploring outside of the den a little bit earlier. They, um, they're now weaning um and so we're able to uh get voluntary weights on the on the kits they can stand on a scale on their own um so we're working with that kind of socialization and they're already you know involved in training sessions so cool that's awesome tell us a little bit about their personalities yeah so um frankie is an ambassador um otis is not officially an ambassador so he's uh, comfortable with our full-time staff that, that have worked with him more extensively, um, but he is still a little bit more um, wary and reserved, um, generally speaking. Uh, we did do some pretty significant training with him leading up to this pregnancy uh, so that he was much more comfortable in our presence, um, and we made some really impressive, uh, really impressive momentum with his behavior and calmness just with us being around. And I think that's been um, a huge payoff for us. Uh, Frankie is a very rock solid animal. She is um, ready to go out and explore other places in the zoo. Uh, she is always up at the front waiting for a snack when we come in in the morning um, and is just a really, um, a really personable animal. Um, one of the ways that she greets the care team that she's um, most bonded to is uh, we will lower our foreheads down and she'll rub the fur of her neck on our foreheads. Um, and that's one of the ways that battered foxes would greet one another and enforce that bond. Um, and so being able to see her doing that with us is, um, is a really important part of the training, the bond that we have, um, and particularly that that's not a food related um, relationship that we have. Um, yeah. So she's, She's great. Uh, and then in terms of the boys, we've seen some changes uh, between each of them as we've hit different milestones. So um, the, the way that they got their names, uh, we have Theodore Tanner and uh, Earl Grey. When the, when so the, official. Yeah, <laughs> when the boys were first born, um, the way that we were able to tell them apart is, was based on their coloration. Um, so we had one that was more tan and one that was more gray. So Earl Gray was the more gray one, and Theodore Tanner was the tanner of the two. Yeah. Um, so we've seen uh, we've seen interesting things where um, 
where Earl has been more bonded to one of the parents, Teddy has been more bonded to the other. We've seen growth spurts where Earl has been more adventurous and, um, and Teddy has been a little bit more reserved. Uh, and, and it's just been a blast to see them grow and develop um, into kind of their own personalities. Do you see them coming up to keepers? Are they like, you know, Frankie like scratches and she'll like lay down for affection, you know, for lack of a better term or whatever. But do the, do the kids do that also? Are they coming up for scratches? Yeah. So, um, Frankie is, has actually, anytime that we've kind of come to another hurdle in the development or there's been a change in behavior and we're, we're trying to figure out what our next steps are, we always keep coming back to Frankie being the key to any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so her demeanor has been really influential in how, um, how the kits have related back to us. So Frankie being very calm, working with Odie so that he's more calm when we're in the space too, um, has lent the boys to feel more confident in coming up to us. Um, when they were younger, uh, Frankie was calm as the kits were nursing that we were actually able to, um, to give Frankie some scratches and the kit scratches while they were all calmly resting the kids were nursing and, and Frankie was just laying down. Um, so we're, we're working on building that confidence now where they're just even, um, in the same space, but a little bit further from mom and dad. Mm. Awesome. And we, I, I at least want to point out that scratches are great from their keepers and they, they, that's an important part of an ambassador animal or animals that we work with in general to have a good relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would not make good pets. So we're not encouraging that, but from a per, uh, like a professional relationship, it is important that the animals trust you and feel really comfort and can come to you for that comfort. Yeah, and it's really beneficial for us as well, um, being able to have um, the ability for for tactile involvement on our animals. Um, that way, we can examine uh, what, when Frankie was nursing to make sure that milk was coming in. Um, if we needed to do a voluntary nail trim, if we needed to give her eardrops or eye drops for something that might happen. Um, being able to to have hands on our animals in a um, in a routine way makes it a lot easier to care for them um, or just examine them generally to make sure that everything is is going as it should. And if the babies are getting comfortable, then they might have the opportunity to be ambassador animals and help with the breeding and be a part of the SSP, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. So they the the boys will be um, part of the the species survival plan, the SSP population. Um, for those of you who might be unfamiliar with that, it is um, sort of a nation and in some cases worldwide uh, consortium where we keep track of the population of individuals, of genetic backgrounds um, for specific species. And then we can make breeding recommendations and pairing recommendations based on that um, to maintain genetic diversity, a strong and healthy population, um, and to kind of keep that within human care and within accredited zoo facilities. Um, so it's, they'll be entered into that. Um, it's the, the SSP for lions is what brought John and Amani here as a pair. The SSP for hippos is what paired Tucker with BB. So we see it a lot and a lot of the movements that you might, um, notice animals going to different, um, zoos is, is oftentimes based on those SSP recommendations. Yes. I'm glad you explained that. We've talked about it before, but you never know if that was a really good way of explaining it and also who's heard what, but it's really important. Um, in my mind, obviously we don't want inbreeding, overbreeding, that sort of thing, but so that we don't need to bring animals in from the wild, uh, Mm. hopefully ever in the future. So we want to keep the wild animals wild and maintain a healthy, like 
genetically diverse population within zoos. So it is important. Yeah, I like to think of it kind of like an insurance policy. So um, we have animals that are managed in human care that if something catastrophic happened in a native range, there would be the potential um, for reintroduction just because we already have that population. Um, and there are some animals that are getting reintroduced pretty frequently on um, the, the red wolf um, that Cincinnati Zoo is also involved uh, with the, the breeding of. Um, that's an animal that has been reintroduced successfully. Um, a lot of logistics obviously go into that, but, um, but for the majority of our, of our SSP involvement, um, it's kind of like an insurance policy just to make sure that we have individuals that are genetically strong and well represented um, to be able to, um, to call upon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that's a really good way to put it for sure. Will you remind me real quick of um, Teddy and Earl's ages? And what are they eating? Are they still nursing or are they weaned? How are they doing? Yeah, battered foxes um, grow up pretty quickly. So they, um, they will be fully weaned and almost adult size by about six months. Um, right now, they are just over two months old. Um, they have almost fully weaned. They're eating uh, a lot of solid food from us. So they're able to eat that produce. Um, they're able to eat the meat. They love, they're turning into really, really adept hunters. Um, so they love chasing after crickets. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> and, and it's really interesting to see them. They'll lower their satellite dish ears down to the ground, pinpoint where that bug is, and then um, have a, a nice crunchy little snack. <laughs> it is always fun to see the videos of that, the way they hunt with their ears. I mean, like, you wouldn't think an animal can hear an insect, but they really can. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, yeah, especially with those ears. So what would you say is like your favorite part about working with battered foxes? They are, um, they're so smart. They are inquisitive. Um, they're problem solvers. Uh, Frankie in, in our training sessions, she has, uh, over 30 um, behaviors that she knows that are cued behaviors. Some of them, yeah, some of them um, we can show off her ability to um, to dig through substrate and hunt crickets, and we'll use that on a program. Um, she can also do voluntary nail trims, and we're able to do voluntary ultrasounds and radiographs with her as well, which was um, very helpful for us in as the, as her pregnancy progressed, that we could see development of the kits, that we could get um, any any of that sort of medical vet information um, with her just enjoying a nice little snack, and and it didn't have to be stressful. And in fact, it was really positive and reinforcing for her. Um, but any time that we're in a training session, if um, if we're not giving her a specific cue, she'll explore and she'll try she'll try <laughs> something else. Um, just to see if that's what um, what we were asking for, and so it makes training her really fun because she's like ready to learn at at um, any point in time, um, and so we can sometimes just have sort of like playtime in our training sessions and see what Frankie wants to do, and if we can then shape that behavior into something that might be either beneficial um, for her own health or if we can use that during a program or something. Very cool. So obviously they'll hunt live crickets and bugs. Do they have any favorite enrichment? Yeah, anything um, that they can dig through. So particularly we'll do um, like slow feeders that have um, a little hole that um, crickets can come out of. So anything that uh, encourages sort of that hunting uh, or, or searching behavior, um, we really love to see. They're also really adept diggers. Um, and so Otis moved probably 
two cubic yards of mulch around <laughs> in preparation for um, digging out the den. Um, that was something that we found to be really beneficial is rather than us trying to construct a space for them, to let them do it on their own. Awesome. And, and yeah. Otis did a great job with that. Um, so any of those um, species-specific natural behaviors that we always try to encourage with our enrichment, um, the hunting, digging, all of that is is uh, high on the list for our bat-eared foxes. No, that's awesome. And if um, listeners or guests wanted to come to the zoo and wanted to see the foxes, obviously I know a lot of the programming and stuff, that's kind of either scheduled in advance with a specific group or it's kind of a day of, spur of the moment type of thing. But is there anywhere where they're... Um, can go check them out in their own habitat? Currently, they're uh, living behind the scenes in one of our uh, animal ambassador buildings. Um, as time progresses and, and as we see um, more development and confidence in the kits, it is entirely possible that we might be able to be out in other areas of the zoo, but for the time being, um, we're kind of going at their own pace and, and taking that uh, day by day. That is one of the tougher parts about the ambassador animals. You can get to see them really, really, really up close, or sometimes you don't get to see them. But mm -hmm. it makes your uh, visit extra special when you do. Mm -hmm. So people are always asking about a lot of the different ambassador animals. Definitely. Stepping away from the foxes just a little bit, I know that you guys, uh, your animal ambassador team, you guys have such a hectic schedule. You're literally, literally all across the entire zoo with all your buildings are so spread out. What does like, just an average day look like for you on your team? Is it just too different to even pin down an average day? Yeah, <laughs> um, everybody on the team has no challenge reaching 10,000 steps in a day. Uh, <laughs> we are spread out across four buildings um, that covers about half of the zoo. Um, and each of those buildings has animals in it that, depending on the person on our team, they may or may not be involved really heavily with the training programs um, for those individual animals. So there is a lot of collaboration, there's a lot of coordination, and there's a lot of communication on a daily basis. Um, and because our schedules don't always align for everybody on the team, uh, certain days of the week might be um, more prioritized for certain animals' training programs just based on the staffing that we have. Mm. Um, so there's uh, every morning we write out a schedule um, with our oh, probably 25 or so different individual um, strings or routines that we do. Um, and then people will get assigned to that based on what they're trained on, um, what they're comfortable with, what the priorities for any particular animal's training program are. Um, and then we all kind of disperse out through the zoo and, and get to work. Do you guys have any sort of schedule where you are supposed to be out speaking to the public? Or do you just do that as time or training allows? Yeah, we um, collaborate with the with our education department as well. So um, some of the animals that are in the animal ambassador team are handled by um, our education staff, are taken out by our wild encounters staff as well. Um, some of the animals that are on a higher tier that either might need more expertise or more um, relationship with an individual animal are handled by our team's keeper staff. Um, so if the education um, camp groups are talking about uh, rainforest adaptations and would like to have a tamandua come to their uh, come to their class, that would be something that our team is responsible for taking mm -hmm. the tamandua and doing a, a program with them. Um, we also, as part of the um, part of having our animals be more comfortable in spaces throughout the zoo, um, we will take them out on our own schedule or on our own. Uh, 
training priorities. So you might see, just as you might see um, the pigs from Children's Zoo walking through the park, um, you might catch a Tamandua out in the park. You might catch a free flight training session with Zulu or Lady Ross's Taraco. So there are opportunities, but um, for the majority of it, um, we are not scheduled in a particular spot at a particular time. That makes sense. You've had some really cool experience and really diverse experience, even just here at our zoo, working with different teams. What is your specifically favorite part about working on the animal ambassador team? Do you have like a favorite part of your day or favorite part of the job in general? Yeah, the the one component that attracted me the most to this particular team um, is the ability to kind of have that public interface. Mm. Um, so I, I love training, I love caring for our animals, but I especially love being able to make that connection with visitors. Even if it's something like, if we're out with a snake, that visitor doesn't have to come over and touch the snake to still be able to have an experience, to learn something new, to perhaps view the snakes in their own backyard in a different way. Mm. Um, so being able to have that, that outlet for um, conservation messaging, for education, um, for a really cool experience wow, an anteater just walked past me. I was not expecting that. That was so cool, um, is is the part of the job that I really love the most, being able to share that. That's the unique part about being an ambassador. Keeper, I feel like you, all of us, it's our job to teach and to speak to the public, but you guys have that extra like priority on that, and I think it's really important. And I think it does make people's day, even if it's just like, oh, that was a really cool memory that I won't forget, versus... I didn't like snakes until I met one, and you taught me about it, and can make a huge difference. So. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and kind of like you mentioned earlier, Janet, like those spur of the moment interactions. I feel like those matter so much to guests, and it's so important. Like I've spoken to kids before, and it's like I'm expecting. What was your favorite part of the zoo? I'm expecting them to say, "Oh, seeing the gorillas or seeing Fiona," and they were like, "No, I got to pet a lizard, yeah. and it was amazing." <laughs> and it's like those hands-on experiences, especially for kids at their formative ages, can matter so much. So. It's really cool that you guys are able to kind of make those experiences happen. It's got to be really rewarding. Yeah. 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 It's uh, every day is definitely different. Um, but you really never know what a, what a visitor might take away from the experience that they had here at the zoo. Um, I know when I was younger, having experiences like that, seeing, uh, seeing a barn owl at the nature center that I grew up near was one of those moments where you're like, wow, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. it, and it stuck with me. It sticks with me to this day, 30 years later. So um, we we truly would have a real challenge in mapping where our impact has really reached, but we know that it's out there. Um, any any interact, like being able to feed a giraffe might be something that changes the course of, um, of an entire person's career path or um, interest in conservation. Absolutely. Definitely. I mean, I know you made a big difference just for me and Jenna today and our team morale. Just <laughs> <Yes>. these skunks. <laughs> we were already having a good day, and the day just went to the next level seeing these skunks. <laughs> you know, yeah, we're so lucky. You know, we see giraffe and lions yeah. and hippos, and we walk in. I walked into the break room, and there's a baby skunk. And my jaw <laughs> dropped. It's like it's never ending, like excitement. Um, so, is there anything else we haven't touched on that you wanted to share, or? That we forgot to talk about? No, I'm just having a blast being able to um, kind of bring the Animal Ambassador team uh, out into the spotlight. And the next time you're here at the zoo, keep your eyes peeled because a lot of our animals will be uh, out and about in the park. 
Um, we just got a new jungle gym structure built um, yeah. near the train station that is um, for animal use and our tamanduas and snakes and box turtles and all kinds of creatures have been enjoying that space. Um, so it's really cool to be able to see adaptations that you might not see in action. Um, a tamandua's prehensile tail helping them yeah. keep on, a snake being able to navigate um, climbing even though they don't have any arms or legs. So it's a, a neat opportunity. Check that spot out when you're here on Grounds Next. No, that's a great way to put it is just keep your eyes open. We'll get questions <laughs> sometimes about like, where is so-and-so animal ambassador? How can I see the ambassador animals? And it's like, they're somewhere around the park, I promise you. They're out there somewhere, <laughs> but they could be at Vine Street Village at the entryway. They could be down at the marketplace at Mai Tai's Market. You never know where they're going to pop up, but they're going to pop up somewhere around mm -hmm. too. <laughs> yeah, we're always somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you ready for trivia then? Yeah, let's okay. go for it. I do have trivia for you guys. Um, the trivia that I prepared was about foxes. In hindsight, maybe I should have had some skunk questions. <laughs> <laughs> if I didn't know we were going to have some surprise visitors today, I would have had some prepped. But it's all questions about foxes today, so I hope you guys are up for it. Our first question. Today we're talking about bat-eared foxes, but obviously there's many different species of fox. How many different species of fox are there? Oh. Question number one. How many fox species are out there? I really Ooh. should know that off the top of my head. I always guess ridiculously wrong. Twelve. Twelve for Jenna, okay. I'll go with twenty. Twenty. So you, in some respect, you're both very close. <laughs> so the answer of how many fox species depending kind of how you exactly want to define a species and genetically, there's either 22 or 23 oh, you're okay. really close. fox species. Yes, 22 or 23, depending what? on what source you look at. But within those 22 or 23, there are 12 quote-unquote true foxes. So the wow. true foxes are this um, separate taxonomic set that are more closely related to each other than the other remaining 11 species. So there are 12 true foxes, but... That's air quote true foxes, but there are 20 to 20, 22 or 23 fox species out there. Huh, I need to look into that. Yeah, so the, the 11 like other... Yeah, what's an example The 11 of other fox species are technically just as closely related to foxes as they are to wolves. Um, so they're kind of like those in-betweens, whereas those 12 true foxes are Can their own one? branch. Can, Can I name one? Like, give me an example. Oh, I thought you meant, like, physically named. <laughs> I was like, I would, love to, I would love to have a species named after me, Jenna, but I'm not that important. No, can you give me no. an example? So one of the, one of the true fox species, um, we have a couple here. Um, the bat ear fox was not on the list, but the arctic foxes are a true fox species. Um, gray foxes are a true fox species. But what's a not true fox species is what I want to know. Oh, um... And should we still call them foxes? Right. Should we still call them foxes? One of them... I was looking at it. I want to say like the Tibetan fox, for instance. They're like a little bit. Tibetan fox have a, a weird. The kind ones of with weird the square snout, shape. Yeah, head. square head, yeah. a different little snout. Yeah, um, they almost kind of look like coyotes. Not really, but yeah, they're kind of like these in between species. To look some of this up, you learn something every yeah. day. I yeah. know. I'm. I'm still learning as we're going. Can you name one, Stephen? Yes. <laughs> we're gonna have the Mark to us fox out there one day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, question number two we got. This one's specifically about bat-eared fox, something I had no idea about them. How many teeth do bat-eared foxes have? Ooh, a lot. 
a lot. <laughs> so Mark made a really good comment earlier about how um, they have extra teeth and they have extra kind of muscles so that they can chew quicker, so they can eat more insects, they can kind of break down those exoskeletons. But how many teeth do they have? 48. 48 from Jenna. Hmm. I'm going to go with 36. Jenna's actually super close. Wow. It's 50. 50. Okay. 50. Whereas most canids have between 38 and 42. Isn't, um, I feel like the North American opossum also has somewhere around 50 oh. teeth. That makes sense, that but could I don't be, know. Yeah, that could be right. It's the most teeth of any North American mammal. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, I usually can't even remember how many teeth humans have. So, <laughs> I knew it was around 36, so I just went with more for the facts. Yeah, so most canids are about somewhere between 38 and 42, but bad-eared foxes have actually over time evolved to have 50 teeth um, so they can crunch those exoskeletons, they can really take in a lot of insects at once. Wow, that's like quite the adaptation. That's yeah, a lot of extra teeth. It's crazy. I guess that also comes with being an insectivore. Well, yeah. omnivore, but mostly mm -hmm. insectivore, yeah. Alright, what is the smallest species of fox out there? Of those 22 species, what is the smallest fox species? I'll give you guys oh. Either swift or fennec? I was going to say fennec. I'll say, you guys are both right. I was going to give you a hint and say <laughs> we have them at the zoo, okay. but you guys are on top yeah. of it. It's a fennec fox, yeah. So if you guys are ever at the zoo visiting, you want to see a fennec fox, we have them over in our Night Hunters building. Smallest um, fox, but do they have the biggest ratio ears to body? Do we know? I, I think that's right. I, I don't have the research behind it, but I feel like I've heard that stat okay. before. I've heard that fact. Yeah, the ear to... Ear to body ratio is huge for those fennec foxes. Um, they're they're so found cute. in the Saharan desert. They use those big ears to kind of disperse heat, let heat out. They're going to weigh somewhere between 2.5 to 3.5 pounds. So that is a tiny little fox. You yeah, said that's about. The bad ears weigh 10 pounds? Yeah, a quarter or a third of the size. Okay. Of How much did the kits weigh when they were born? Do you know? Um, we got weights on them when they were a few days old, um, and they started out, our, the first recorded weight we had was under 200 grams. Wow, okay, I was going, I was thinking of our painted dogs, and they were like four grams. to 500 grams, so mm -hmm. that's tiny. That is tiny, yeah. wow. Oh, so cute. Yeah, so fennec fox is going to be the smallest adult fox species, two and a half to three and a half pounds, somewhere in there, but they're cute little guys. If you're ever here, go check them out at the Night Hunters building, <laughs> they're adorable. Alright, next up, we have... Maybe the sneakiest fox out there. If anyone is a parent or has some nieces and nephews, you've probably seen the show Dora the Explorer at some point. <laughs> what is the fox's name in Dora the Explorer? The fox is the oh. villain, and it's kind of given a bad rep for foxes because we don't like to see foxes as villains around here. We think all foxes are heroes. But what is the villain in Dora the Explorer? There's like a saying she says, no, no swiper. Is his name Swiper? Swiper. <laughs> Here we go. The, the Did you know that one? No, not being, um, not being an uncle or a father myself, the closest I was going to get was either backpack or map. And that's... <laughs> backpack and map, also very important characters. I don't know how I know it, though, because I haven't... Well, I must... I saw it for some reason when I was younger. I don't know. How yeah, Swiper the Fox. The no Swiper, no Swiper. That's the, the only reason phrase. I know yeah. it. Oh, my gosh. Not that I've ever spent time watching Dora the Explorer by myself. Never. It was definitely with my nephews and nieces, <laughs> for sure. You can learn a lot from that show, right? 
<laughs> oh man, no, you got that swiper. <laughs> All right. Nice work, Jack. Next up. <laughs> I'm doing better than normal today. <laughs> We've got one last question. Mark, I'm sure as someone on the Animal Ambassador team who is talking about foxes, educating people about foxes, I'm sure you've gotten this question a million times. It's a question as old as time. What does the fox say? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I, the lead-in, I knew where you were going as soon as you started the You're question. You're fired. <laughs> Tell us, Mark. No, I don't know the answer to you. Will you please Obviously, share? I'm being facetious. If you, but if you posed was... that question to Frankie, she would say, are there snacks? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the first response. <laughs> it was interesting, though, because um, reading about foxes, Depending on the species, most foxes have somewhere between 35 and 50 vocalizations, which is crazy. They do have a really high vocal repertoire, which I think it could be part of why that song kicked off. And mm-hmm. what does the fox say yep. became so crazy? I because want you to sing it. You know, that's another episode <laughs> for another time. <laughs> we'll, we'll release a music the, video. The Zoo Tales karaoke. <laughs> yeah, that's a. Uh, you bring up a really interesting point, Mark. That I. We do hear Frankie and Otis communicating back and forth quite a bit with those vocalizations, and we've heard even more of it um, since the kids have been born. So the family will be communicating all the time, whether they're in the same space, whether somebody's exploring in a different location, um, a series of chirps, squeaks, uh, all kinds of different noises are coming out of them. Um, And so we've kind of learned even a new language almost in watching um, hearing the sounds that they're making and then watching how everybody reacts to those. So a lot of them are just kind of checking in and seeing, like, oh, you're still over there? Okay, cool, everything's good. Um, but it's that's been a really interesting component of, of our team kind of learning um, how the family is, is communicating with itself. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, to spend enough time with them to recognize, like, maybe what they're meaning or what you think they might be meaning. Yeah, cool. especially seeing how that changes, like you said, when mm-hmm. it was just the two of them, and now it's the whole family group, and the vocalizations all change and take on new meanings. That's awesome. Yeah, we've seen times where, um, where like, Earl has made a vocalization, and Otis has run right back to check on him, and then as time progressed, it was almost, you know, like, the boy cried wolf. <laughs> um, and so Earl would make that, make that same call, and Otis would continue eating or going about whatever he was doing beforehand. It was like, you're fine. Don't, I'm, I'm not rushing right over <laughs> right. to you. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you guys, thanks for hanging in there for trivia. Appreciate you guys being good sports about it. But Jenna, did we have any other questions for Mark today? Yes, our final question. What can I do? Yeah, um, I right now am um, very involved in the um, garden that I'm tending to uh, down the street from from my house. Um, I know plant for pollinators and the importance of having pollinator friendly plants has already been touched on. Um, but one of the really cool things that you can do, uh, whether they're indoor or outdoor is upcycling, um, items to be a, uh, a plant holder. Um, so you can do things like, um, taking old jars, um, old teapots and drilling drainage holes in them, uh, painting soup cans and using those as planters. Um, but ways to give objects uh, a new life um, as they're containing life. I love that. Yeah. And plant pots are really expensive. Yes, too. they are. They can be, yeah. So that's a really good idea to save money. Yeah. Um, pre- like you can use uh, five gallon buckets as uh, patio plant containers. Um, if you are intending on moving things into a garden plot, you can start seeds in cardboard uh, egg cartons and use those as. Um, 
as sort of starter pots rather than using the the plastic alternatives. But anything that you anything that will hold dirt will hold a plant. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, I have seen people use the egg cartons before. It seems to work out really well. Between you just kind of start them in there. Once they're sprouting and ready, you cross plant them into the into your garden, and they have a head start. Yeah. yeah, and that cardboard can even just get planted right with the mm-hmm. seedling so it doesn't disturb as much of the um, the root structure. The cardboard will um, degrade into the soil and everyone's got a happy tomato yeah. at the end of things. Yeah, or if you have an old watering can that you're no longer using or has a hole in it or something, you can use that and put plants in it. It would be really cute little decor. I've seen some really whimsical ones where people have taken um, even... Uh, ceramic toilets that are no longer in use <laughs> and planted those. You have a, a cascade of flowers coming out of the tank at the wow, top. Wow, that's commitment to yeah. making that have a new life there. I love it. Well, that's a great one. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, any way to get new greenery out there is a great idea. Right? Yeah, yeah, more plants awesome. and, and, like you said, reusing and giving things a second life. Yeah. Uh, keeps it out of the landfill. I love it, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us, Mark. Thank you so much for bringing the skunks and letting us uh, get all of our excitement out. (laughs) We were very happy to see them. Yeah, thanks for having all three of us. (laughs) And thanks so much for all the time and work. I know your department is really crazy busy right now between the foxes, the skunks, everything else you've got going on. So we definitely appreciate your time coming out here and spending some time chatting and joking around with us. (laughs) Absolutely. We look forward to seeing you out in the park. Yes. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a great day. Yeah. Take care, guys. Until next time.